for me, this um, actually underlines a more fundamental point, which also links to investment, um, or what the manifestos say about public health, is that these manifestos are so incredibly short term. Here in the UK, we're in the middle of a general election campaign. So between now and polling day on the 12th of December, we're running a series of podcasts looking at the claims being made around health. We want to examine the gap between the promises that politicians are making and the reality for those working in the health service. In our earlier podcast, we looked at some of the issues around funding and staffing. This week, we're going to be looking at what the parties are promising around other services, particularly social care and public health. We're going to look at what they've said about addressing health inequalities and the wider determinants of health and what they've said about issues about pollution and climate change and their impact on health. I'm Tom Mobley, the UK editor of the BMJ. I have with me Abby Rimmer, the BMJ's careers editor, and she's going to be setting out what the parties have been pledging on these issues in their manifestos. And to talk over the issues, I'm joined by Jennifer Dixon and Nikki Philpott. Jennifer and Nikki, could you introduce yourselves, please? Hi, yeah, I'm Jennifer Dixon and I'm the Chief Executive of the Health Foundation and I've been knocking around health policy for some decades so I've seen a lot of rather too many general elections. <laughs> and I'm Nikki Philpott, I'm the Director of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. Thanks. Um, obviously a lot of the focus in the manifestos and around the discussion of them is around investment and staffing for hospitals and GP services but there's this huge issue around social care, public health, wider determinants of health climate change and how that all affects our health. Abby, could you summarise for us what the main parties offering around some of these issues? Sure, and this really will be a summary. So in brief, the Conservatives are saying that they will seek a cross-party consensus for reform around social care and they're also guaranteed that people don't have to sell their houses to pay for their care. Labour is saying that they will provide per free personal care for older people and put a cap on personal contributions to care costs. And finally, Liberal Democrats are saying that they want to create a cross-party convention on health and social care. Jennifer, can I come to you first? So on those sort of commitments around social care, I know that you and others have been sort of disappointed in the lack of detail plans in the Conservative manifesto, particularly, especially after Boris Johnson sort of promised quite a lot on that to really sort of sort it out. Were you surprised by the sort of lack of detail we're getting there? And, and what, what sort of more would you have wanted to see? Well, I suppose the short answer is no, I wasn't surprised, actually. Um, uh, uh, the first thing is these manifestos all by the hallmarks of being very hurriedly thrown together. And, you know, when you think about it, how quickly was this election sort of called and how big Brexit is an issue. So everyone's kind of distracted. Um, the second thing is um, social care is such a divisive issue, isn't it? Particularly how, not so much to support older people in particular, but how to pay for it. And you saw what happened at the last election with... Uh, Mrs May absolutely torpedoed by this concept of the dementia tax. So while you really do, we absolutely are struggling to get some kind of answers on social care, some kind of concrete solution at last. Uh, during the election campaign, that, that ain't the time to do it because anything you might produce that's costed could be easily trashed, as we've seen before. So probably the best thing is just to take it out the heat of the election and try to do some sort of cross-party thing afterwards to get mm. some kind of consensus. Um, on the other hand, that leaves the manifestos looking rather limp in this very crucial area. 
but clearly people feel they can get away with it and the, and the risks are too great mm. to uh, cost it up. So I think that's why. So politically, it makes a lot of sense, but actually coming from the health and social policy world, it's just another disappointment after a thousand days of mm. you know you know no green paper and a hundred days since Boris Johnson stood on the steps of number 10 and said at last we're going to have a long-term fix to the mm. social care crisis so I'm not surprised they've come out and said you know no older person should sell their house because clearly that speaks to their constituency and a lot of middle England so it's it's sadly not surprising. I was just wondering if you thought people and by people I really mean voters kind of appreciate how important social care is and what what a crisis there is in social care. We hear a lot about the NHS being in crisis, but I get the impression that maybe the public don't appreciate that that's also happening in social care as much. I think that's a really good question. I mean, about six or seven years ago, I was uh, at an event where Liz Kendall, who was then the Minister for Social Care, was um, asked about this and she just said, look, my post bag is not full of letters of people complaining about social care. It's more full of letters about forests than it is about. So so oddly enough, it is, it's a huge, you know, causing a huge sum total of human misery in this country. That is not enough to move the dials. It's not enough to move the public opinion or, or letter writing to the MPs. You have to ask why. Mm. And it could be because people are just, a lot of people are confused about social care. People who don't need it or use it think it's all free. Terrible shock when they find out it isn't. And at that point, they're busy mopping up all the mess for their relatives. Then you're just clapped out and can't be bothered to start sort of banging a drum over it. Um, however, politicians are getting in the neck clearly from some of their constituents about losing their house and all the rest of it. So I, I suspect that is the area to, to really um, tackle. And after all, the whole business about capping catastrophic costs, which is losing the house point, is actually the solution is on the statute book anyway. It was put there in 2014 with the CARE Act. They could enact it, but they haven't done so. Um, partly because they can't agree what the level of the cap should be. But it is there. They could do it tomorrow if they wanted. So um, I, I think some of that's the reason why the public aren't sort of coming forward. And it's, and it's a shame. But this is what politics is for. This is what leadership is for. You know, goodness knows there are lots of issues pressing on the country at the moment that the public don't have a view on. But it's for representative democracy to do something about and show leadership. And this is one of them. Mm. And it seems that there is, I mean, it, it is higher up the agenda than it has been before. There seems some recognition that you need to do something about. Other plans have been shot down, like you say, that, you know, a, a label's given to something and it just falls away, like the dementia tax or whatever. Yeah. And now we're at the stage where there's kind of a consensus around the need for a consensus. And is there some hope in that as a, as a sort of, they're all agreed that that might be a way forward? Yeah, I think we've been near the line for a number of years, actually. Um, there's been a number of moments when, you know, civic society has mobilised and used its muscle to push people near the line. Gordon Brown almost got there. I mean, it was, he was overtaken by the election before he could implement some of the reforms that he wanted. Um, we've got the Care Act as well, so I think we're, we're, it has been moving up the charts. Let's put it that way. It's nowhere near as, hop, as top as the NHS, for, uh, for, for example. Let's just hope that this muscle that's pushed it so far doesn't sort of fall back. Uh, I don't know what the analogy is for falling back of muscles, but uh, and and actually some of it sticks. But I think I think the idea, I think the catastrophic cost business. I think everybody realizes uh, Andrew Dilnot's argument from the 2011 Commission, which is that the state should insure people for catastrophic costs that they cannot predict or plan for. Mm. I mean, any modern state would do that, and we've seen other states become active in this area: Japan, 
Germany, for example, in 95, managed to do something. Um, so this is about getting political mobilization, just as you say. So let's hope. I mean, the, the other the other factor is here is the if, if you don't want to do this for moral reasons, for human suffering reasons, think about the effect on the economy with all these carers who are then having to take time off work to care and sort this mess out for their ailing family. So, I mean, even if you were just hard nosed mm. and sharp, sharp nosed about this, it's time has come and it's not going to go away. I just wondered whether you thought that the NHS was had in any way been guilty of almost hogging the limelight from social care. You know, we had the junior doctor strike and people, the doctors were quite good at making the public understand that maybe their terms and conditions weren't what they should be. But actually, how aware are the public that there might be carers who are working for less than the minimum wage? And the NHS has sold its kind of crisis very well and yet social care hasn't. And I wonder if one is guilty from taking from the other. I think that's a really good point. I and mean, when you think of the ingredients in healthcare, you've got, uh, you know, expert workforce, a lot of talent on the shop floor who can be uh, active and cleverly mobilised. Um, you've got uh, life and death as a quality of the care. You've got white coats. Um, you've got uh, it being the number one concern consistently in the public eye. So you've already got a lot of ingredients and you've got massive civic society groupings like think tanks that are really focused on the NHS. It's £140 billion in England, 150 plus across the UK. Social care is eighteen billion pounds. It's less. It's it's local. It's local government, and you don't have the leaders who can come forward and bang the drum. The workforce isn't quite so skilled. A lot of um, zero hours contracts, underpaid, uh, low paid workers. Let's put it that. A lot of unskilled workers relative to the um, NHS in terms of professional skills. So the ingredients aren't there. And you know places like us, the Health Foundation, you know, we've only more latterly started to bang the drum on social care, whereas um, whereas we have we are constantly banging the drum on the NHS. So it's it's a combination of size, volume of staff, skills of staff, the amount of focus there is outside and attention on, on it, in part set by the public polls, which show that NHS is number one and social care is nowhere in the top 10 or has not been there. So I think all those reasons are, are, are valid. Can I just turn now to another one of those big issues that's rising up, sort of public awareness, which is um, sort of the environmental issues and health. And on that, we've got a sort of few commitments, more than I, I guess we'd had in the last few manifestos. Abby, can you just talk a bit through what, what we're seeing about environmental issues and health and their sort of relation in the, in the manifestos? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll talk you through very briefly kind of what um, the three main parties have committed on on climate change. So the Conservatives are saying that they will deliver um net zero greenhouse gases by 2050 and set strict new laws on air quality. Labour are saying that they will put the UK on track for a net carbon zero by the 2030s. They will ensure the NHS becomes um, net carbon zero. And they've also committed to building an NHS forest of a million trees. And um, the Liberal Democrats are saying that they will reduce greenhouse gases to zero by 2045 and end fossil fuel subsidies by 2025. Nikki, can I come to you first on this? There's obviously a fairly direct link between some aspects of climate change and health. Are, th are there any issues around that that are, that are reflected in, in the party's manifestos around where they've tried to sort of link those issues? Well, without wanting to kind of go backwards, I'd say there's not a fairly direct. I'd say there was a direct <laughs> link between climate change and health, and it it is an emergency. I mean, the WHO say it's the most defining health issue. The climate changes are the defining health issue of our time, and we can see this now, and it's only going to get worse. So to stay within our kind of current 
hopeful projections of 1.5 degree warming. Um, that's going to be difficult and it's also going to kill people and there's going to be dramatic loss of life even at that trajectory. If at the moment we stay as we are and it goes to four degrees, that is catastrophic and I couldn't even imagine what that would look like for the health of a person today. So um, we know it's happening now. We can see um, this happening and we can feel it with our floods, with the heat, with the kind of Greta effect, with Extinction Rebellion. And we can see that demand from the public that we were just talking about that isn't so prevalent with social care coming through with climate change and the environment. And that's led to the manifestos definitely recognising it much, much more than 2017. I mean, I counted in one of the manifestos 60 mentions of the word climate change. So, you know, maybe we're getting to the climate election. People also are, are, are talking about it. So it's it's regularly coming up in polls as the thing people care about. Um, the NHS and Brexit are often coming first, but it's right up there with crime and the economy, which is amazing and hopefully means we will get some action. But I hope it also won't become a kind of political fault line because obviously it's one of those issues like social care, which needs to be addressed by all parties uh, and taken very seriously. And if we're going to tackle this, we all need to work together on it, which is uh, really important. But the manifestos, yes, they have lots of reference to when pe petrol and diesel will be phased out with slightly different dates, when fossil fuels will be phased out planting trees in nature and trying to kind of uh, stop the dramatic biodiversity decline that we've seen. And as you say, one of the parties has even talked about the NHS. And we know that contributes to 40% of public sector emissions um, in, in the country anyway. So, you know, we can see that there is some commitments there. We know that there is more of an attitude change there. We now know much more about the health impact of climate change. Um, but the detail, that's the hard stuff. And that's what's not coming through, perhaps unsurprisingly, within a manifestos. Jennifer, what's your sort of take on, is, is it to do with the fact these manifestos have been rushed? Why, why have we not seen that kind of detail in the manifestos, do you think? For me, this um, actually underlines a more fundamental point, which also links to investment, um, or what the manifestos say about public health, is that these manifestos are so incredibly short term. Mm. Um, there aren't really government documents that you see, or you know, whether it's to do with the manifestos or outside the manifestos, that really talk about the long term. And really, climate is one of those complex, mm. um, multifactorial, long-term issues where you really have to value the future and think about it. it it's one of those issues that governments are just so very bad at really analysing and uh, charting out, therefore, what might be a plan of action that could be specific in the way that you're mm. mentioning. So uh, how we value the future, how we value public health, actually, mm. is uh, a very fundamental point. And there, actually, um, a couple of manifestos are quite interesting because they are talking about having measures of well-being rather than GDP, which I know is very fashionable these days, uh, and having a well-being index, mm. Uh, and thinking also about the um, baking in some need to look at the future through some legal mechanism, such as they have in Wales, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, for example, which could have a key element of which on climate change and the need to do something, not just for one term of parliament, uh, which is what politicians like to think about, but really for the 10, 20 year horizon and beyond. Until we get that orientation in our democracy, we're not going to have enough focus on the long-term things, whether it's climate change, whether it's the mental health of children, whether it's long-term public health issues like obesity, 
uh, or even longer term investment on education, we're just not going to have it. And it's all oriented towards the short term at the moment. And that is what we really need to work on. So the other sort of before I shut up on this point, (laughs) the other point is that I think the Lib Dems do have something in their manifesto on trying to improve democracy, the political process. And it is rather vestigial. It's very sort of lightweight, I think, probably because they didn't have much space or time, but at least they have tried to address it. Uh, And uh, I think that of of all the things in the manifesto, this is a big, big issue that we need to come back to. Uh, The other, sort of related to that, there is just nothing about Europe in these. I mean, isn't that bizarre? (laughs) Nothing about our future Mm. relationship to to Europe uh, other than get Brexit done Mm. or similar across one or two moments. So so I think there are these longer term, bigger issues if, if I saw these manifestos at my organisation, I'm afraid I'd send them back saying this is draft two, we need to have draft 20, uh, mm. there'd be red pen all over them. So they're very hastily thrown together, no wonder they concentrate on the short term and not the, the, the important issues that mm. Nikki, Nikki addresses. So how, how seriously should we take some of those ideas around like a wellbeing index? I mean, is that just an idea someone's thrown out in, a, in meetings that oh, we'll put that on? Or is it something that there's already planning for? And, uh, you know, if we've got these short term goals in rush manifesto, should we be taking these kind of big ideas seriously or thinking they've just been put there to win a few votes? So these ideas have been around for some time and actually sustainability, climate, natural resource sustainability is part of it. For example, that's New Zealand now measure at least progress um, in those terms, not just economic growth, but natural growth, human capital growth and so on. And it has got quite a good pedigree. The World Bank is is talking about it. um, the ECB is talking about it um, and, and other international organisations, WHO, for example. Um, it, 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 well, the issue is not how you construct an index and whether you tra- change the conversation in policy to make sure that there is health for all, social capital for all, natural you know, preservation of the natural environment for all across all policies. The question is how you really get the rubber to hit the road and how you really get action on these things. And so far, as I understand it in New Zealand, um, progress has been limited towards having a more comprehensive measure of progress. But that's exactly what what we need, I think. The first step is to construct something that looks more comprehensive than just more money, 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 which is what we have at the moment. And Nikki, on some of the targets in their manifestos i mean they are slightly different around the, what the parties are promising should we on something like air quality should we be looking at pulling those apart and thinking this party's offering more than that or have they just thought ask someone what, what what's a good score and then and then got different answers you know have they should we be really pulling that apart and are they offering something different should we be considering our vote on the basis of what they're offering around this? they do have differences in their detail i think they're broadly all going in the right direction but i would say that um you know you might want to look out for the word clean air act which is something that the alliance many many other health charities have been talking about um we've also been calling for who limits on uh, pm 2.5 um because we know that that's causes head to toe kind of uh harm to us both from you know from unborn to elderly the whole span and uh and it kills forty thousand people prematurely a year nine thousand of those in london i mean if this was water you'd be all kind of freaking out about taking kind of water that could kill you we're talking about the air we breathe and so the government are kind of making the right moves or have been making the right moves and and, and calls for this but the detail in the in the manifestos are some of them are saying they, they would have a clean air act some of them are actually mentioning the word who limits 
none of them are saying it by 2030, which is when I think we need to have it by. Um, so we're getting closer, but no specific commitment to the timeline. Although I should mention Scotland, um, because we should mention Scotland, and they are as a country committing to it by 2020. So they're way ahead of most other EU, EU countries. So um, there's also kind of slightly different pledges on how to get to kind of those phase outs of, of fossil fuels and and uh, and kind of uh, petrol and diesel. So there's things around infrastructure, about charging points, as technology, incentives, there's different kind of ways of getting to it that the parties have outlined. They're all kind of showing it as an issue and it's great that it's in there, um, but we just, I think we probably need a bit more detail on when exactly those firm pledges are going to be made. And are there sort of <clears throat> major things around this area that you, you, you would like to have seen in there? Are you, are you, is there the detail you'd want? Is there more they could have put in? Is this a you know about where you'd like them to be? Yeah, I think. It, I mean, I think um, Jennifer's. It's interesting when you say that it was just they've been thrown together in a rush. In a way, though, they've all been wanting an election for so long. I'm surprised that they hadn't done more writing and planning for this. Um, so uh, I think it's great we've got a talk about net zero, um, and there are a range of different dates and uh, ambitions to get to that. I do worry that no one's actually really thought about the detail of getting to those targets and the huge change in society that we're going to have to go through to get to them. And so I think there's a kind of a plucking of the air out of the air of dates without really thinking about how to get to it. Um, we know there's been some very detailed analysis done by the Committee on Climate Change on how we get to net zero by 2050. I don't think we need to be that worried about dates. I think we need to get there as soon as possible. And some sectors are going to be before other sectors. So we think we can make great headway on transport much quicker than other industries like aviation, for example. Um, lots of activity we can do on housing. So I suppose that's that's sort of, that's one thing. I think um, we also, uh, there are gaps there. You know, we know that in order to tackle climate change, we need to talk about food and diet and what we eat. We know that we need to cut emissions in this sector. It's going up. It's a really complex and emotional area um, and it's it's not easy to talk about, but um, we do need to eat less meat. We need to eat better meat and we need to eat less dairy and we need to watch out for what happens after Brexit, all those trade agreements, you know, flooding the market with cheap, not nutri non-nutritious food that could kind of really um, be unsustainable. So those are all the kind of massive watch outs, which are really huge challenges for everybody. And a lot of those, I mean, um, the, improving our diet um, and all those things around the wider determinants of health and health inequalities. I, I, I'm not reading a lot in the manifestos that seem to be addressing those. That kind of seems to be taken away into a sort of, you know, often get accused of nanny state when we talk about policies being shot down by a phrase or whatever. Is there more you would want to see around public health and, and the idea that, you know, it's a whole environmental, it's a whole sort of ecosystem of, of keeping ourselves healthy and making sure, you know, we're tackling obesity, we're keeping our children healthy, we're making sure they've got clean air and... It's quite a lot in the Labour manifesto on that, I would say. Obesity okay. and uh, extending the sugar tax to milky drinks, for example. Um supporting um, early mental health, uh, you know, children's mental health and so on. Um, there's also quite a bit in the Lib Dem manifesto also. Um, practically nothing in the Conservative right, yeah. manifesto, which is, which is quite interesting. And on a very parochial point, um, you know, that's reflected in how much they are prepared to fund public health. You know, the, the public health grant part of the Department of Health, um, where... 
the investment by Labour is higher than Lib Dems than 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 um, Conservatives on that front, and obviously there's quite a bit in Labour about reducing inequalities in health, which, as we know, are widening, and we know that mortality is stalling and actually reversing in in um, women of a particular in social class five and. The, uh, the poorest, most deprived women, for example, and um, you know, poverty is the probably the largest source of ill health going, mm. isn't it? And um, you know, Labour is is determined to try to reduce poverty and support the most vulnerable, um, uh, and um, but without much about how that's going to be paid for in the mm. long run out, outside of taxation. You know, where is the wealth going to be generated to enable mm. that to happen? But I think the way to think about this is um, is not so much that the government through the nanny state approach sort of dictates to people, you know, how they should be healthy, but to understand that the state can set the weather in which health is produced or not. Mm. Um, and the weather includes, you know, uh, you know, obesogenic environments, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm. Stressful Absolutely. obesogenic environments, you know, poverty where both parents are on zero hours contracts and the kids are stressed out because the parents are rowing because they can't afford to put stuff on the table, etc., mm. etc. Et so there's a lot that the state can do to, after all, this is what the commercials do in advertising. Mm. They nudge, they use behavioural insights. Can the state do the same intelligently? Mm. Yeah, and I would say that the kind of relationship between climate change and the ability to kind of have better health is obviously huge because, as you were talking about, kind of the state changing the environment or the weather for health, if you just imagine a city design and how you can improve that. I mean, our cities are making us extremely inactive. Most of us are living in them. They are overheating um, and it's just unsustainable. But if you actually thought about, you know, how many more people you could get active by promoting less car use, um, and how many, you know, 37,000 people die per prematurely a year through inactivity just by walking a bit more. You could be so much healthier. Let's redesign our city so you can get to those public spaces from your front door. Let's make sure that, you know, we, we build cities that you can walk your kids to school. Don't make it five minutes to cross a road, which I had today coming back from a meeting in Victoria just because of the kind of lack of public's crossing. Let's really replan it because that will make us healthy. And of course, it will also mean we're not putting that kind of pollutants in the atmosphere and causing climate change, which mm. is also killing us. And you're kind of going with the grain of, of people's views on that. You know, they're frustrated that they, you know, that the, I don't know, the swimming pool's being shut down or they can't go to the park mm. or that you can't walk through there because of whatever. And, and you know, they want a lot of the people, time people want to do more exercise, want to get more active and they're, yeah. they're kind of being prevented. So in that sense, you're kind of not, there's not something you're fighting against. Are you? You're trying no. to help people do what they want to do. And it is amazing the kind of uh, the impact you can have. I mean, I was watching some, I was listening to some sort of thing about LA and this community. And if you build the community in a dense way, you can make those social interactions to lessen loneliness, but you can also build them in order to people walk to school. So even in a car gas guzzling city like LA, there was like something like a 30% more journeys on foot done Mm. because of the design of the neighbourhood. So, you know, we really do need to be thinking about this. And I think it will have those dual kind of benefits for everybody and this goes actually hand in hand with new developments across in cities particularly across the world to engage the public far more in decision making Mm. and to do this using digital means um, not just on budget allocation as in Reykjavik but also other other cities that have tried to involve people because the answers are there, aren't mm. they? And the other interesting, I don't know if you saw the YouTube, there's this, this example of, of how, what, what I think it was Barcelona, what Barcelona would look like if, had it been designed for and by women. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you, it had a lot of the features that you're describing. <laughs> okay. There's a lot, yeah. I kind of wanted to turn 
this discussion about climate change and health on its head slightly because obviously the manifesto pledges are all kind of positive preventative things and I'm sure well I imagine that's what you would like to see in the manifestos but I just wonder Nikki when you you first started talking you mentioned that there's a potential I think four degree rise in temperature mm -hmm. and what effect that might have on people's health and I wonder you might both be able to answer this but do we actually have a health service that's prepared long term for the implications of climate change we probably have doctors and nurses who are working today who'll still be working in 25 years time you know is the NHS prepared for whatever health effects climate change has I think that resilience and adaptation is something that is massively underdone in the health service and I imagine there is some but you probably have got as as buildings hospitals built on floodplains you have you know plans for uh, heat waves that you probably can't um, deal with within hospital and we know that um, you know, summer heat waves are presenting themselves in A&E uh, every day. There are more, you know, high pollution days, 419 more ambulance journeys to emergency departments because of kind of the kind of issue around uh, respiratory health. So, no, I don't I don't think hospitals are necessarily getting ready for it. I don't think our kind of anchor institutions for, you know, want of a better word, are kind of resilient enough. We do know there's a lot of work being done um, to prepare the NHS to become carbon neutral mm. by 2050. Um, and there's a lot of work that has been done around the fleet and electrifying the fleet and kind of looking at estate management and forestry, you know, the NHS forest, etc. Um, one of the things, though, I would say that I think we haven't quite got our heads around yet or or I don't think anyone has really is what happens in terms of clinical practice mm. you know what actually happens in that room that is makes a a kind of a, a, a consultation sustainable or a kind of intervention sustainable you know we do know that many more um, health professionals are kind of thinking about things like social prescribing and um, you know, more environmentally friendly pharmaceuticals, whether that's through an anaesthetist or a kind of a respiratory doctor looking at inhalers for asthma, etc. But, you know, really, we need to look at everybody's practice mm. and work out how you make your practice sustainable. And that's a really interesting and almost kind of invisible thing that we wouldn't know yet. So, you know, like we have maybe GPs would, you'd come in for a different issue and your GP might mention that you maybe are overweight and you need to think about your health. Do you think we ought to have GPs going, oh, and also are you I don't know, recycling or are you, have you, did you walk here other than drive or? Yeah, this is a difficult area because as you can imagine, people would say they were very busy. But if you're a GP or a, you're in A&E and someone says to you on a very high pollution day, why is my asthma worse today? I think very naturally you would quickly come to the conclusion, why, why, why? Because of climate change, because of the impact that we are having on our environment that is damaging our health. And I think certainly I hear from different uh, doctors in different areas that that's already a conversation that started to happen. I don't think there's enough information that is, you know, produced to be given to that mm. patient about it. There are things that people can do to protect themselves during high pollution days. But um, I would love to see climate champions within the kind of health professional community because I think they are, as we know, the most trusted messengers in society. Nurses, then doctors, you know, people trust you. Yeah. Around this conversation around <clears throat> all these wider issues that are impacting on <clears throat> individuals' health, I mean, the the manifestos, as you say, are, are very sort of short term. They're very pointed on the, on on specific issues and 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 things like that. And they, you know, they probably have to be. They're trying to get votes. They're trying to say what we're going to do next or whatever. But these are all big ideas that will need long term plans to do. You know, there's a lot we can do. Are you optimistic that 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 our political system, our you know, the parties as they are at the moment, will, will be able to achieve? any of these sort of 
exciting new things that we've been talking about well i think i think it might be worth if if the if the I, if if the question is really about the role of government, can government do this as opposed to the political parties? Uh, it's probably worth thinking of both the politicians in one in one layer, who come and go, don't they, mm. and have varying ideas at different times, um, and the other is what the Americans would call the deep state, and that is the civil servants and all the you know the think tanks and the surrounding apparatus that that feeds them. Um, and I think really the hope should be in that layer more than the politicians. Politicians, after all, are a weather vane, you would hope, for public opinion. Mm. But I think the people who can keep the show on the road and actually build the apparatus that, that is needed to look on the future and value it and constantly course correct and weave future projections into today's strategies, that's where you need to have the... And I think the danger there is if you have a hollowed out civil service or you have a fast churning civil service where that amount of knowledge just simply doesn't build up. You know, an example here is um, how is the futures um, work that's, that goes on across government. I mean, it's not bad actually in the UK compared to other countries, um, but it doesn't really poke through consciousness when it comes to these manifestos. It doesn't really poke through consciousness in quite a lot of government documents. Um, so that really needs to be strengthened. Some other countries do this a lot better. For example, Singapore, they have Canada, have Denmark, um, and possibly, dare I say it, the EU, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is the deep, deep state par excellence, one might uh, argue. But I think we've just, yeah, we just have to, to turn eyes away just from the short term, really the two or three year horizon. How we do that in Britain is a very big and important question, not addressed by all the heat and light and froth that's around at the moment. And then you have to ask the question, who is in charge to do that? And that goes for futures, it goes for long-term issues, it goes for constitutional change. Uh, and I think that if there's any lesson for me from the last three years of mess, that's it. That we need to somehow sort out ourselves and not, con not consider our democracy to be as fantastic as we once did. And Nikki, how, how optimistic are you about our sort of government, deep state, being able to achieve any of these sort of great, and, uh, I think you have to be optimistic, but with a massive, I mean, certainly in, in terms of climate change, with a huge dose of concern and a call for action now. I mean, I think we have, you know, I, it's been oversaid and, you know, you've hear it time and time again, but we have a moment. We have kind of, you know, 10 years to turn this around. We may still not be able to. You know, things have got so far, but um, we have to take action now. My concern is is that uh, I don't think the public necessarily understand the kind of implications of that and the full sort of systems change that will have to come to make that happen. And I don't see the political leadership in that kind of strength that will, you know, do the kind of hard and soft things that are necessary to be able to make change happen in this context. So, um <sighs> <laughs> There's some points of light, aren't there? The you know, plastic bag tax, yes. uh, you know, that that kind of thing. I mean, it's beginning, isn't it? And yeah, but it's it's. I know that's my, you know it's minor. like an emergency and we're late. Yes, yes, and yes. we are really late. Yeah. You know, and um, yes, uh, plastic bag tax, lots of money revenue from that. But then yesterday there was a piece of research that said bags for life going up. Yes, mm. um, you know it. It 
you know, we're talking about jobs changing. We're talking about the economy changing. We're talking about people's houses being mm-hmm. retrofitted. You're talking about not being able to have that gas mm-hmm. hob boiler. You know, mm-hmm. s- serious things th- that we have to do. And I hope that we are starting to understand that we need to do this in order to prevent more and more people dying. But, you know, I just think that when it comes to personal behaviours and personal impacts, that's when we will get headlines like, I can't use my wood-burning stove. Mm-hmm. Isn't this awful? And actually, you know, <sighs> let's all face it, it's uh, it's much, it's way beyond that. I don't know if that answered your question, Tom. Well, I think it, I think it did. But I, I mean, my feeling is that we need, uh, with plastics, single-use plastics, we seem to have had a real moment where, <clears throat> I mean, I might be different to other people, but I don't think so, that you suddenly look around your house and you're like, this is appalling. Yeah. It looks mm. like a... You know, you're just like, how were we living like this? How was I using this once and th- and then and, and why am I th- and and, yes. and your whole and you seem to be yeah. we need that for so much yeah. around climate day, but also around the wide determinants of health. Why are we in this world where mm. you know that it's just so much easier to eat this huge amount yes. of of carbohydrate-y, starchy, yeah. you know, five hundred calories, a, you know, yeah. a go yes. stuff than it is to eat something healthy and, and tasty and whatever. And, mm. and 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 how do we break that? And and it seems suddenly with, with single-use plastic that you suddenly go well, why am i doing this we, we didn't used to do this I, i'd never you know no. 15 years ago well, we weren't doing this well and there's so many things that we need to do that on. yes or make it easy for people so so i had unfortunately five hours of air travel yesterday uh, it's like which is bad isn't it okay that's bad but but i, I, I but i had to go to two airports three airports and in each airport there was no water fountain the mm. only way to get water mm. was to buy a bottle mm. which was shocking mm. really so mm. that's a very simple thing isn't it yeah, just it in, is. and, and and that could be you know extended to all workplaces yeah. Yeah. easily and i think if uh, i might mean i might be wrong again but I, I guess a year ago 18 months ago i wouldn't i wouldn't i would have thought oh, this is a bit why is there not water but i would have taken it and if someone had said you are using a single use and then like sort of you know berated me for it i would have thought hmm. but now i feel i'm doing that to myself i'm like yeah. this is appalling why am i doing you're this? feeling you know? ashamed yeah. of your own kind of yeah, yeah using using that and i don't want to not say that individual actions are important of course they are you know fly less eat less meat walk around more you know think about the impact of your plastic consumption etc by exactly there are lots of things we can all do Mm. but you know it's going to take the state as well and Mm. kind of globally we're going to have to have a lot of action so it is everybody doing that but i think you're right i think there's an entry as well to people thinking about this and i think I think lots of us have made that journey to start with, you know, as you say, looked around our houses and thought, this is crazy. Jennifer, Nikki and Abby, thank you so much for that. As I said at the start, we'll be bringing you these election themed podcasts each week between now and election day. If you've not yet caught up with the previous podcast, do give those a listen. We've talked to Rebecca Rosen and Claire Girarda about the political debate around primary care and to David Oliver and Hugh Alderwick about some of the funding pledges being made by the main parties. We'll be discussing a range of other issues around health and the election between now and election day. And if you have suggestions for issues we should cover or questions you'd like answered, do get in touch. You can find all the relevant contact details by going to bmj.com slash podcasts. I've been Tom Moberly, the UK editor of the BMJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>